of that, his, his attributes, his identity. The next five, which are love, authority, beauty, modesty, and integrity, have to do with God's character, and they help us understand what God is like. And then the last one, salvation, uh, is all about what God is doing, okay? It's his purpose. And so we need to be familiar with them. I'm going to real quick review the seven principles of holiness that we derive from these attributes and uh, just share a little bit. Now, I don't expect everybody to hang on to all of this, but it's in my book, so you can read about it and think about it in more detail. But just to give a kind of an overview, we talked uh, last night about the principle of identity in quite a bit of detail. As you see, uh, God has a well-defined identity. Everything he made has a distinct identity. As uh, Brother Harrelson said, you know, we have identity as either a male or a female, and we're to live out that identity. Um, In Eden, it was manifested, this principle is manifested in the, the different kinds of animals and plants. God made man, male, and female. And uh, so we're to live according to that principle, means no crossing over between categories. God is God. We're not to be God. We're not to act like we think we're God. Uh, Man is man. Woman is woman. We have maybe different roles and responsibilities. We have uh, differences in our hair and in our clothing. So uh, these are things to keep in mind. Uh, The next principle is the principle of love. We say God is love. That's in the Bible. Uh, and the, uh, it's manifested in Eden in that uh, it was not good for man to be alone. Uh, God made man to be the primary object of his love. He also made woman to be an object of man's love. And so uh, love is all about relationship and how we treat one another. So we love God by worshiping him. We love our neighbor by doing good to our neighbors. We have mutual concern for one another. We don't set up stumbling blocks. We seek to edify. We're willing to sacrifice. So that all comes out of the principle of, of love. That's, that's pretty important, huh? Amen. And so then we have the principle of authority. God is the Lord of all. And that means he has authority over everything that he's made. That includes us. And so in Eden, it's manifested that all created things are subject to God. And God tells Adam what he may do and what he may not do. And, of course, we know Adam uh, did not um, follow God's instruction, did he? He Basically, when Adam ate from that tree, he was thumbing his nose at God's authority and saying, you can't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want to do. And all sin is an attack against God as the Lord of his creation. And so the application, we're to submit all to God uh, and to the authorities that God puts in our life. Man submits to Christ, woman to man. And we're also to exercise authority in love. Sometimes we're in a position of authority, and we're to do it, exercise it the way God exercises his authority, exercises it with love. By the way, the uh, adversary, I mentioned the adversary of identity is confusion. The adversary of love is self-centeredness. The adversary of authority is resistance. Okay, you either submit to authority or you resist authority. And the adversary wants us to resist the God-given authorities 
that he's put in our lives. Uh, the next principle is the principle of beauty. Uh, since God is invisible, his beauty is in his inner qualities, right? In other words, God's beauty doesn't really have anything to do with what we see. Now, that's, that's man's definition of beauty. It's all about what our eyes see. And, uh, you know, they say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And so we all have our own concept of what, what's beautiful. Um, and men all over the world have different ideas about what constitutes a beautiful woman. Uh, but the Bible teaches that beauty is fading. It's, it's short-lived and uh, that, that kind of beauty. And so what God wants us to see is that real beauty uh, is in our inner man, not in our physical appearance. And the wonderful thing about that is, ladies, that that means every one of you can be beautiful. And it doesn't really matter what you look like. And that's really important. And we talked about the beauty of holiness. And so God wants us to see that. Um, In Eden, we saw the Sabbath day was established, and it represents uh, the bride of Christ in a way. I don't have time to go into all of that except to say that um, in the book of Genesis, the word uh, finished or perfect, when God finished everything, it's the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word kala, which also is, in, is translated bride. Okay, and so uh, the bride, what's a bride? A bride is someone who's set apart from all others for one person and, and who is beautiful. Uh, somebody told me once that on the wedding day, the, the uh, husband, the, the, the groom looks at the bride and he thinks, I hope she never changes. And the bride looks at the husband and thinks, I'm looking at a lifetime project. <laughs> right. So it's the perception. And so uh, uh, in application, uh, this principle tells us that we're not to be focused on the outward adornments that are designed to draw attention based on physical appearance, uh, and, and that we are to focus on developing the inner beauty, which is godly character, and which the Bible says is incorruptible. And, we're, you know, our physical appearance is inconsequential when it comes to our uh, salvation, but our inner beauty is what God is really looking at. And there's so much that could be said about that. I could teach another whole lesson on just that. The next principle is modesty. And um, the word modesty comes from a a root word that means measured. Okay, and so uh, God lives within the limits of his character. He's, In other words, he's measured. He's not unrestrained. He's not out of control. He's not excessive. And um, by the way, the, the adversary of beauty is vanity. Okay, vanity, which is sort of like false beauty. Um, God is uh, perfectly in control of himself, and so he's modest. And uh, he asked, uh, where are you, to Adam and Eve? And even though Adam disobeyed, God was not out of control. God sees things from the beginning. He sees the end from the beginning. He didn't, he didn't go, I can't believe you did this, Adam. You know, he didn't yell and scream. He was modest. He was moderate. He was, uh, he, he placed limits on himself. And so uh, the application is that we should avoid everything that 
clouds our thinking and causes our mind to be out of control. We should set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The Bible talks about having the mind of Christ, and there's, there's a lot more to this in the way we dress, expressing our modesty, and so on. So um, the adversary of modesty is excess, going to extremes, going beyond the bounds of uh, Paul described it as um, decency, okay, moderation, right? The next principle is the principle of integrity. Uh, we see that God is, he's perfect, he's incorruptible, he's authentic, he, 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 he is who he is. He's not putting up any kind of a false front. He's not trying to trick or deceive anybody. He's not duplicitous, okay? And so this all has to do with God's integrity, um, and in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when Satan tempted Eve, he implied that God had impure motives, didn't he? He said that, well, the Lord knows that the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. He, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to hem you in. He's trying to control you. God was trying to protect them. But the devil turned that around and said, no, he's trying to dominate you. He's trying to control you. And he implied that God had impure motives. Well, that's God doesn't have impure motives. God's tells it like it is. And so the applications are that we're to be genuine, we're to be consistent, uncompromising, resolute, uh, we're not to be hypocritical. The adversary of integrity is hypocrisy, which is putting up a false front. It's being fake. And uh, we're to be incorruptible. There should be no gap between what we profess and what we are. Amen? And uh, we're to guard our eyes because our eyes have a way of um, damaging our integrity, do they not, right? You think about the eyes. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, you know, when David saw Bathsheba, you know, the eyes get us into big trouble and cause us to compromise our integrity. So uh, the last principle is the principle of salvation. And it's represented by coverings that could be, you could think of it as the principle of coverings. Uh, man was innocent and naked in Eden. He was out without shame. There was total openness between man and God. There was no need for any covering. However, after sin, shame came on the scene and what immediately Adam and Eve felt the need to cover themselves. So we're all living in the world after sin and so God has now ordained that we cover ourselves. Uh, he covers our sins with his own blood. Uh, we fall short. He's our Savior. We're to express this uh, principle by modest clothing, covering ourselves properly. We need to remember the purpose of clothing from the beginning was to cover, not to expose, although the world uses it the other way. Um, and uh, the hair on ladies is, to, is described as being a covering. And since the women are the, um, the representation of the bride of Christ, it, it shows us our need to be covered, to be covered in the blood of Jesus and to be covered by the Holy Spirit. All right? So uh, that's just a real quick summary. I want to move on to the real topic for tonight. And... Um, I mentioned uh, Mary yesterday in, in this particular passage. I think it's probably the same woman that I read about last night who 
washed Jesus' hair with her feet. It says, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped her feet, his feet with her hair. So um, um, tonight, I want to focus on the topic of hair, men's hair and women's hair. Um, specifically, I want to talk about why we believe as apostolic people that women should not cut their hair and men should keep their hair neatly cut, okay? And uh, this idea is derived from three of the principles of holiness. First, the principle of identity, hair, our hair, what we do with it is one of the ways we identify ourselves either as a man or a woman. Uh, the second is the principle of authority. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we see that hair is one of the ways a man shows his submission to Christ, and one of the ways a woman shows her submission to man, right? And then the third is the principle of salvation. So uh, as the image of God, man keeps his hair well trimmed because Jesus, as the image of God, needs no covering, right? He's without sin. He needs no covering. Uh, but as the glory of man, a woman allows her hair to grow freely because she is a portrait to the world of the, the church, and uh, the church always needs the blood covering. Every human being needs that. And so the Bible says her hair has been given to her as a covering or for a covering. So I think um, it's pretty much without question that uh, the hair on our heads is one of, our, one of the most notable, notable features of our outward appearance. Whoops, I'm clicking buttons, okay. So we know that in the Bible there was different characters that uh, their hair was described. Samson, his physical strength was associated with his hair. Uh, there was Absalom, who was noted for his long, thick hair, and uh, his hair turned out to be his undoing. And then there, according to the book of Proverbs, a man with gray hair is to be honored. How do you like that, Pastor? We have enough that you can tell our hair is gray. Right, Brother Patterson? Yeah, we still have a little bit. It's gray. So Proverbs says that the gray-haired man is to be honored. Now, in more recent times, uh, Albert Einstein was quite renowned, not just for his what was in his head, but for what was uh, covering his head. And in the 60s, the Beatles came along and took the world by storm, not be just because of their music, because also because of their shaggy hair. And uh, even the absence of hair can be a distinguishing mark. You might recognize some of these guys. Yule Brenner, he was in The King and I, famous as the bald head. Telly Savalas, Mr. Clean, they all gained notoriety because of their bald heads. And so the head and the hair or lack thereof is a very uh, noticeable feature on human beings. And because of the visibility of our hair, God is concerned about what we do with it. I think Paul made it very clear when he said to the Corinthians, does not even nature teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, um, once um, the principles of holiness are well established, we did need to look at how we build a strong case 
uh, to people about the biblical values concerning hair? How do we show people that are, have come to God and been born again about this business of men keeping their hair well-trimmed and women allowing their hair to grow freely? And uh, there's five questions that I, I pose that I sort of have asked myself. I felt like I need to answer, be able to answer these questions. So first, does God really even care about our hair? Uh, second, is there hair that is distinctly women's hair? Uh, number three, what differentiates women's hair from men's hair? And number four, what is shorn hair? What does that mean? And then what is long hair? What does long hair mean in the Bible? And so I want to answer each of these questions in a little bit of detail. Uh, the first one is, um, does God really care about our hair? Uh, some people argue that the hair is irrelevant. They think it's just legalistic uh, teaching, um, and they have all kinds of excuses why it's really not important. But uh, we know that it is important. One way we know this is because as Jesus was sending out his disciples to preach the gospel, he warned that they would face severe persecution. And he talks about this in Matthew uh, chapter 10, and he says, he says this to encourage them. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He then, he then said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus apparently wanted his disciples to know that their hair, each of which is numbered, is more important to God than a sparrow. And just as the life and death of a sparrow is in accord with the will of God, that's what he said, not a one of them falls to the earth and dies with, it's up outside of the Father's will. And so in the same way, uh, we should be concerned that our hair is in accord with the will of God. Amen. So clearly God is cognizant of each and every hair on our heads. And that's, it's easier for him now as time goes by because we tend to have fewer and fewer hairs, right? So the number keeps going down. Now, the second question is, is there a type of hair that is distinctly women's hair? Um, and I mentioned this last night, and a lot of people would argue that hair is hair. There's no real difference, but I pointed out in Revelation 9 and verse 8, their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. And so from God's perspective, there is hair that is distinctly women's hair, and that also means that there is hair that is distinctly not women's hair. Uh, presumably, we could say it's men's hair. And so a person can have hair that's like, a, like women's hair, or a person could have hair that is in some way different from women's hair. Okay, but the point is, uh, there is in the Bible a dis difference between what constitutes women's hair and then what is not women's hair. And so what differentiates men's hair from uh, women's hair? Some people argue that 
There's no biological difference between the hair on a man's head and a hair on a woman's head. But um, it may not be biological, but there can be a difference. And, and we, know, we can note, if we read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 6 and then verse 14, we can see that there are really only three possibilities in the way that Paul talks about hair. Okay, and so what he says is that hair can be shaved or shaved off completely. In other words, cut off right at the scalp. That's one possibility he mentions. Hair can be shorn, which means it's cut with shears or, it, or scissors. Shears is just another word for scissors. And, it, and, and it's, it, it's irrespective of the length of the hair. It's simply... It's been cut, or it's been clipped, or it's been trimmed. And then the third possibility is that it's long. Okay, so you've got the possibility of shaved hair, shorn hair, or long hair. Now, is there a fourth possibility that I haven't thought of? I mean, these are the three that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, I can't imagine what what, what other possibility there would be. It's going to have to, all hair is going to fall into one of those three categories. Of course, sh- there's no hair in shaved hair, head. It's all the hairs on the floor. Um, so according to Paul, nature teaches that a man is dishonored by having long hair, but on a woman, long hair is her glory because it's given to her for a covering. So he suggests that the only thing that really differentiates women's hair from men's hair has to do with whether or not it's long hair, okay? And since the only kind of hair Paul contrasted with long hair is shorn hair or cut hair, it follows that uh, whereas a woman's hair is long, uh, a man's hair is, is shorn or a man's hair is cut. So to have hair like women's hair means to have long hair, and to have hair like men's hair means to have shorn hair. All right, Paul said on a woman, it's a it's a it's shameful for her head to be shaved or shorn, either one, and so long is what's appropriate for a woman. Um, and then the so the next question is then what is exactly shorn hair? And some people argue that the word shorn means to cut short, sort of like a crew cut. Uh, and so the fourth point we need to establish is the correct meaning of shorn hair. And I think the reason a lot of people think that shorn means cut short is because we use that word when it comes to shearing sheep. And so when sheep are being sheared, you're cutting the hair off right sort of at the skin level. It's like giving the sheep a a crew cut because you're trying to get all of the hair off because it's wool and and it's going to be used for making clothing. Uh, in the Greek language, however, the word translated shorn is the word uh, kiro, and uh, it simply means, the basic meaning of it is just to cut off hair, okay, without specifying uh, how much hair is being cut off. So it could be a lot of hair, most of the hair. It could be a little bit of hair. It just means to cut off the hair. Uh, it's, you're reading into it if you're saying it means to cut the hair short. Uh, So even though some people say it means to cut it close to the skin, 
uh, like shearing sheep. Um, the Greek word doesn't really bear that out, and neither does the English word. The English word shear uh, really simply means to cut without regard to how much hair is being cut off or how much is left after it's been cut. For example, um, there's something called pinking shears. And uh, sometimes they're used to cut material when you're going to make a dress or sew something. And so when you use pinking shears to cut material, uh, the material has been shorn with shears, right? And it doesn't matter if you've cut off a yard or you've cut off an inch. It has nothing to do with the length of the material. It has to do simply with the fact that the material is being shorn or cut. When a person uses a pair of garden shears uh, to trim a hedge, we usually don't trim a hedge all the way down to the ground, okay? We don't cut it that short. Uh, and so if you clip off just a few inches of a hedge, the hedge has been shorn, it's been cut, or we might probably say most of the time it's been trimmed, all right? Uh, and so that word in the New Testament can can be used for any kind of cutting off regardless of the length. So it doesn't necessarily mean hair that's been a, made a crew cut. It just means it's been cut. The word shorn uh, actually comes from a 400-year-old translation of the Bible. Uh, it was used more commonly back in old English days, but the more recent translations uh, translate the word kiro as cut off or cut instead of shorn. And so it's really the, the word that we would normally use today. So for the sake of argument, uh, though, let's say that shorn does mean to cut close. Let's say it means to cut the hair to the length of one inch. All right. Would we then not be forced to say that hair that is at least two inches long would be long hair? I mean, if it has to be cut short to be considered shorn, then anything longer than that would be considered long, right? Because it's going to either be shorn or long. It's either cut or it's long. And, uh, but would, would anybody say that a woman that has hair two inches long has long hair? Would anybody say that? No, nobody would say that, okay? And so... Uh, that would render the word long as meaningless, okay? So um, there are sometimes ladies like to keep their bangs trimmed to a length of two or three inches, and they, they allow the rest of their hair to grow out. But you know what? If it's okay to cut any of your hair to two or three inches, then it would be okay to cut all of your hair to two or three inches, and could it be considered long if it's only two or three inches long? No, nobody would call that long. So um, Paul contrasted the word kiro or cut or shorn. He contrasted it. He made it an alternative to long. So it's either long or it's cut, whether it's cut a lot or cut a little bit. And that indicates that hair cannot be both long and cut at the same time, at least from a biblical perspective. And since Paul also said if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, we can say that men ought to keep their hair cut. Okay, men should not have long hair, whatever that might be. They should have shorn hair or cut hair. Um, 
The question is, to what length, okay? And so how do we determine what's long? Well, the only verse, uh, well, let's talk at first about men. What, what's the appropriate length for men's hair? Uh, the only verses I can find in the Bible that give explicit instructions to men concerning their hair is directed to the temple priests in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, I mentioned uh, yesterday I showed you the pictures of the statues uh, of men that lived around the time of Christ who all had short-cut hair. And, uh, but here we have in Ezekiel 44 and verse 20, they shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. So that was the instruction to the priests. And it seems to be that was the common practice among the Jews, even though they, they wore beards. Their hair was cut short. The, living, the New Living Translation says they must neither let their hair grow long, uh, grow too long, nor shave it off completely. Instead, they must trim it regularly. Okay? So that's why we go the, to the barber every three or four weeks, gentlemen, right? Because we're keeping it trimmed regularly. Um, if we put this instruction together with Paul's instruction that a man should not pray or prophesy with his head covered, then we can say that a man is to keep his hair trimmed to a length that would not be interpreted as a covering, okay? And so uh, the idea of well-trimmed seems to indicate that it's, it's not necessarily a crew cut, but it's kept relatively short. It's not hanging over the ears or the shoulder, then it would suggest the idea of a covering. So this brings us to the last important question is what is long hair, all right? So in our King James Bibles and our new King James Bible that I use a lot, uh, it simply says long hair. That's the term. But what is long hair, all right? And that's what we need to determine. So if we think of it purely in terms of the length of the hair, then we have to ask some questions, okay? Is this long hair? Some might say yes. Uh, some might say no. It's kind of depends on what your opinion is. How about this? Would this be long hair? How about this? Is this long hair? Okay, how about this? Is that long hair? Yeah, that seems pretty long. Um, the question, though, is how long does it have to be to be considered long? Long is a relative term, right? Uh, long can mean different things to different people. Long can mean different things uh, in different situations. I might say it's a, it's a long way home for me. Uh, on Monday, because it's, I think, about eight or 900 miles. But for somebody that lives in uh, Moscow, they might say, that's not a long way home. I've got a long way home, you know. And so long can have different meanings depending on how we're using it. And so we need to think about what would be long enough to be considered long. We've all kind of agreed two inches could hardly be considered long by anybody's standard. Um, but I want to suggest to you that it, it very well could be that the lady on the left, the first one there, she may be the only one in the picture that actually has long hair from a biblical standpoint. We, we don't know. I'm not saying she is. I'm just saying 
It very well could be because it could be that the other three have cut their hair. And so even though certainly the one on the right, anybody would look at that and say, well, she definitely has long hair, but if she has cut it, then biblically it's no longer long hair, it's shorn hair, right? It's, it's cut hair. And cut hair is contrasted with long hair. And so the only possible definition of long hair is uncut hair. Any other definition would be arbitrary. It would be, uh, it would also prohibit a lot of women from ever having long hair. Even if we said, well, as long as it's as long as the lady on the left, where it comes down to your shoulders, as long as it's to your shoulders, it's considered long, then there would be some women who would be prohibited from having long hair because some ladies, their hair doesn't grow down to their shoulders. Now, how could, what would God say about that, right? So from a biblical standpoint, the only hair that's distinctly women's hair is hair that's not being sheared or hair that's not being cut or clipped or trimmed regardless of how little that may be. In other words, women's hair is hair that's being allowed to grow freely. And that uh, is confirmed by the definition of the word that's translated long hair. In the New Testament, in the original language, the Greek language, the term long hair is one word in the Greek language, the word kameo. It's actually where we get the word comb from, okay? You don't need a comb if you've got a crew cut. But the longer your hair is, the more you need a comb. So the word, according to Strong's Dictionary, the word kameo means to wear tresses of hair. According to Thayer's lexicon, it means to let the hair grow, or it means freely growing hair. And according to Vine's Dictionary, it means to wear long hair. Now, vines is a little bit more of an interpretation than a translation, okay? But it is the, um, the covering and the glory of a woman to wear tresses or falling locks of hair, to let her hair grow, to wear her hair long. What constitutes long? Does hair have to reach a certain length to be considered long? Or does kameo mean something else? Well, according to the Bible, kameo is hair that is neither shaved nor shorn, and so the only possible uh, definition from the Scriptures is hair that has not been cut, hair that's not being cut. If hair were determined by the length, long hair would be a subjective assessment. Uh, you could grow your hair to a certain length and say, well, I consider that to be long, and so I can start cutting it now. I'll keep it trimmed at that length. You see, that's, that's how a lot of people would reason but then you're making yourself the, uh, the one who determines what's long and what's not long. You're not letting God determine it. It's kind of a shame that really that the Bible translated kameo long hair because, again, long is a very subjective term. It really should have been translated freely growing hair, and that's the term that I prefer to use. I don't even like to call it uncut hair. I like to call it freely growing hair. 
because that's what it is. Of course, that implies it's not being cut. And so um, everybody could have their own opinion as to what makes hair long, but from a biblical perspective, it has nothing at all to do with the length of the hair. It's hair that's growing freely, regardless of the length. And what that means, and the wonderful thing about this is, is that the very moment a woman commits in her heart that she will allow her hair to grow freely to whatever length God determines, she instantaneously has biblically long hair. Now, her hair may be two inches long, but once she commits, she will no longer cut it. It's now biblically long hair, and that should be honored, and that should be respected. Okay, and yet a woman could have hair down below her knees, but if every six months she's cutting an inch off it to get rid of the dead ends, it's not long hair. It's shorn hair. And Paul said shorn hair is like a shaved head. It's a shame. And so I love this because like, like beauty, like I said, any woman can be beautiful because it doesn't have anything to do with physical features. It has to do with the beauty of your inward man. And, and in the same way, any woman can have biblically long hair by simply determining she will no longer cut it. And, you know, um, uh, my daughters ha- haven't cut their hair since they were little girls, but it's not really very long. It's uh, curly. It goes down a little bit below their shoulders. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, hers goes all the way down to her, the bottom of her back, you know, and I know ladies who have hair that goes down below their knees, and I know others that their hair doesn't even get to their shoulders. But as long as they're not cutting it, it doesn't really matter how long it is. The only thing that matters is they're not cutting it. That's what makes it long hair. That's what makes it, as I said, the better translation, makes it freely growing hair. Amen? And, uh, of course, men should have the opposite. They should have well-trimmed hair. So I want to pause here for a second and see if anybody has a question. Because there's, there is a lot more that can be said about this, and I've got some more stuff. But I, what the thing I decided I'm not going to do is I'm not going to go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, okay? And that's one way of teaching this. I've referred to that verse, those verses, and that's kind of the most prominent place in the Bible where the hair question is discussed. It seems as though Paul is writing it to people who had already been taught about it, and he's, he's not going to a great effort to explain it all. It's almost like it's just a given. It's just accepted. And he's tying it to the principle of authority in that passage. And so um, uh, I'm not going to take the time to go through it all. I have a verse-by-verse commentary on it in uh, my second, the red book about how to teach holiness if you're interested. Um, But does anybody have a question at this point? Yes, sir. You're getting ahead of me, brother. You're getting ahead of me. That's next on my list.
Right, right. Okay, we're going to talk about the Nazarite vow in a minute. Any, anybody else have a question or a comment? Okay. All right, so let's talk about the Nazarite vow. Um, is anybody, um, yeah. There you go, ladies. Let that indelibly go into your head. All right, the Nazarite vow. So um, this is another approach to talking about the idea of uncut hair. Um, this was a practice in the Old Testament. It's, it's not really a part of our experience with God today. It, was, it, it had some symbolic representations. And so Moses explained it this way. He said, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take a vow uh, as a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, this is Numbers chapter 6 and verse 2. So let me pause there. The first thing to notice is the vow was a special way that an Israelite could separate himself to the Lord, which is kind of the meaning of holiness, right? And um, this was not something that could be imposed on a person. The only thing that made the Nazarite vow meaningful it was that it was entered into willingly by a person's own free will. And I think that's such an important concept uh, that, that, that all of the material used to build the tabernacle was given by the free will of the people. In other words, God is not interested in things that are given to him grudgingly. You know, this, I, well, I don't really like this, but I'm going to do it because God tells me I have to. God doesn't care for that. He says, you know, he loves a cheerful giver. Not, don't give grudgingly and, or under compulsion. And so um, it's very important what our attitude is towards these kinds of issues. And, you know, I've known ladies, apostolic ladies, who really resent the fact that they can't cut their hair. And it's such a lot of bother. And uh, it's just a nuisance to have to wash it and to put it up and deal with it. And it pulls on my head and gives me headaches. And all. that's why I say, look, I recognize this weighs more heavily on the ladies than the men. But... It's in the Bible. And Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. This is part of the whole counsel of God. And we would be neglectful if we did not bring this to people's attention. But in the end, people are going to have to embrace it by their own free will, okay? Um, now, some scholars believe that Samson was a Nazarite. Uh, some believe that Samuel and John the Baptist may have been Nazarites. The term Nazarite has nothing to do with Naz Nazareth. Jesus was a Nazarene, meaning he was from Nazareth. But a Nazarite is a whole different word. It's the Hebrew word Nazir. It means to separate one thing in order to get close to another. So according to Vine's Dictionary, to, it means to separate and to consecrate Says, he says they are not distinguished from one another in the early Old Testament books. To, so you separate in order to consecrate. Or sometimes we say today that holiness is separating from the world and, and committing or consecrating yourself to God. And you can't really 
consecrate yourself if you haven't first separated yourself, all right? Uh, the, the Bible goes on to say that a Nazarite was not to partake of grapes or any product of grapes and was not to touch a dead body. A Nazarite was to separate himself from these things in order to get closer to God. But there was another important part of this Nazarite vow, which we can read in verse 5. It says, all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. Okay, so in other words, during the time that a person was taking this Nazarite vow, they were not to cut their hair. They were let to let their hair grow. I think that's why some scholars believe Samson was a Nazarite. He had this long hair, which was a little unusual for a, a Jewish man. Um, the last sign, uh, the hair, was the only one that would immediately identify a person as a Nazarite. So when people saw an Israelite man with this long growing hair, they knew he was a Nazarite. They knew that he had made this special vow to be holy to God. And so uh, when people saw an Israelite with long hair, um, it, that it, it gave him a certain identification. And Moses goes on to say in verse 7, he shall not make himself unclean even for his father or mother, for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to the Lord is on his head. Okay, so they weren't to touch a dead body. Even if it's your mother or, or father or your brother or sister, you're not to touch it because you've got this separation to God, he says, on your head. That's talking about his uncut hair. Um, the theological work, word book of the Old Testament says the nezer on his head is an evident reference to his uncut hair, which was the outward mark of his separation. And so the reason a Nazarite was not to defile himself as long as his uncut hair was on his head was because if his actions conflicted with his appearance, he'd be breaking his vow and making himself a hypocrite. Okay, so uh, it was important that he have this symbolism on his head, but it was also important that he behaved in a proper way. Um, the word nazer can also refer to something worn on the head, such as a crown, okay? And so it's used in Exodus 28 to denote the gold plate that a priest wore on his forehead, all right? And who knows what that, that crown said in Hebrew. It said, holiness unto the Lord, And the theological word book of the Old Testament says, in view of the fact that the long hair of a Nazarite was a nezer denoting his consecration and the headplate of a priest was a nezer denoting his consecration, the word nezer appears not to connote crown in a primary sense, but crown in the sense of the sign of one's consecration. This could be one's hair as well as a headpiece. The Nazare was a sign of the king's consecration to his office, just as it was a sign of the Nazarite's consecration to God. 
So in some instances, it was the crown on the king, and, and with the Nazarite, it was the hair. But it, what it was was something on the head that, that was a mark of consecration to God, all right? Uh, Wilson's Old Testament word studies says, the gold plate which was fixed upon the forepart of the high priest's mitre with this inscription upon it, holiness to the Lord, was a token of his imminent distinction and separation to God. Therefore, it was the name of separation or consecration given to it, which we translate crown. And as a crown or diadem is the badge of separation or imminent distinction from the inferior part of mankind, so this name is also given to the crowns or diadems of kings and to the hair of the Nazarite. So the point here that I'm wanting to emphasize is that God has been interested for a long time in the holiness of his people being marked by something on the head. And why would that be? Because the head is the most conspicuous part of a person, okay? And um, people make all kinds of statements by what they do uh, with their hair. Now Moses, uh, in talking about the Nazarite, he finishes with these words. He says, then the Nazarite shall, after he completes his, the term of his vow, then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So in the end, the hair was simply an offering to the Lord, right? And that's exactly how it is for us. Whether you're a man who keeps his hair cut or a woman who lets her hair grow, in the end, you're simply making an offering unto the Lord. You are the offering, right? We're living sacrifices. Now, uh, like a lot of Old Testament teachings, the Nazarite vow was designed to teach New Testament principles. So the word Nazir, where we get the word Nazarite, uh, it was also used in the context of farming. And Jesus talked a lot about farming. And Moses said to the Israelites, uh, he said that what grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. This was, he's talking about uh, the seventh year when they weren't to harvest their crops uh, or they weren't to, to manage their fields the way they normally do. It says, what grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of your untended vine or unpruned vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. The word translated untended here or unpruned is the word nazir. Okay, the very same word. And so these were, in a sense, Nazarite vines, and they were not to be cut or pruned during the Sabbath year, but they were allowed to grow freely. And so, again, the word Nazir means to not cut, but to allow to grow freely. Uh, as Strong's Dictionary points out, an unpruned vine is like an unshorn Nazarite. And that lets us know for certain that a Nazarite's hair was not defined by its length, but by the fact that it was being allowed to grow freely unto the Lord. 
Okay, that's such an important point. Um, a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, the entire Old Testament was translated into Greek. So it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, and that is called the Septuagint. And um, in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 5, where it says, He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow, the Septuagint translates the term the locks of the hair with the Greek word komeo, the very same word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, that word is only found in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Every other time the New Testament talks about hair, it uses the word thrix, which is um, just the basic hair, the word for hair. But komeo specifically means freely growing hair. It's only used in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the hair of a Nazarite, which clearly is freely growing hair. So in a sense, I guess we're all supposed to be Nazarites, which means we're also supposed to be separated from the world and consecrated to the Lord. Uh, But as New Testament priests, we're not required to wear a physical crown or a gold band on our foreheads, but we're supposed to identify our consecration by the proper sign on our heads. And so for a man, it's well-trimmed hair. For a woman, it's freely growing hair. And this goes back to the idea that God created man, male and female, and he wants there to be a clear distinction between the two. You should be able to see a man and a woman walking through the mall, and you'd see them from behind and be able to instantly tell which one is the man and which one is the woman. Amen? Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen, which I've quoted numerous times now, one more time I'll say it. It says, but if a woman has long hair, if a woman has comeo, freely growing hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair, her kome, her freely growing hair, is given to her for a covering. The word covering means a veil. Okay, so in old days and even in parts of the world today, women wear veils. Um, Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words says that the word kome, as used in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen, shows that the covering provided in the long hair of the woman is as a veil, a sign of subjection to authority as indicated in the headships spoken of in verse 3. So earlier in chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says the head of every man is Christ, the head of of Christ is God, and the head of woman is man. Okay, so he lays out the divine order of headship, and, and here, Vine's Dictionary, he's saying, that the hair is a symbol or a sign that demonstrates this submission to the proper authority. Um, the important point here is that he says the hair is the veil. Young's literal translation translates verse 15 this way, because the hair instead of a covering has been given to her. The, the hair as an alternative to a veil has been given to her. So this is why we say that Christian women don't have to wear a a veil made of fabric, okay? And there are some groups. There's a lot of Amish and Mennonite people where I live, and Amish and Mennonite women cut their hair. They think they have long hair because 
It usually grows down their back, but it's still cut. They keep it cut. But they require, they're required to wear a fabric bonnet of some sort. Sometimes it's just a little tiny thing clipped to their hair, but they always have it. And we have a lady in our church about a year and a half ago. She came and got baptized and got the Holy Ghost. She grew up Mennonite. And you know what her mother told her? Her mother told her, point blank, if you stop wearing the head covering, you will go to hell. And we showed her in the Scripture she didn't need to wear that head covering anymore. Her hair was given to her instead of a veil. And instead of the covering, the hair is the covering. It is the veil. And so, um, you know, it says when a woman's praying, she should have her head covered. Does that mean... You wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're feeling the Lord tugging at you to get up and pray for a while. You go, wait a minute, I can't do it until I find my little bonnet and put that on. Now I can pray. No, it's silly. It's ridiculous. If, if, if it means a head covering, it means that a man shouldn't pray if, unless he, if he has a hat on. You know, and if you're out working in the field and you feel led to pray and it's a hot sun, but you have to take your hat off before you can pray. You have to have your head uncovered. No, it's got nothing to do with a, a fabric covering. It has to do with the hair. Uncovered, an uncovered head is, is, is a head that's got cut hair on it, and uh, a covered head is a, a head that's got freely growing hair on it. And again, the length of the hair is irrelevant. It's whether or not there's a commitment not to cut it. So let me uh, cover a few Old Testament concepts about head coverings. I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. But in the Old Testament, a covered head was associated with faithfulness and subjection to authority. Uh, in Isaiah 6.2, it says that the angels that minister for the, before the Lord keep their faces covered. Apparently, it was a sign of their recognition of God's glory and authority. Uh, when Rebecca was about to meet Isaac, the Bible says, so she took a veil and covered herself. So she covered her head with a veil as a sign of her willingness to submit to the authority of her husband. Uh, under the law of Israel, if a woman was accused of unfaithfulness, a priest was to stand the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head. Numbers 5.18. This uncovering of the head was to denote the woman's unfaithfulness and insubordination to her husband. And this idea of having the head covered to convey a sense of honor and subjection to authority is exactly what underlies Paul's teaching. He's simply saying, look, ladies, you don't have to put a cloth veil over your head to demonstrate this. That was all just a type and a shadow of what was to come but you just have your veil on 24-7 by not cutting your hair, by allowing it to grow freely. Of course, this idea has virtually vanished in our modern culture, and most women think it's a horrible thought to never again go to the beauty parlor to get their hair cut. But you know what? Just because that's the way the world feels about it, that's no reason for us to ignore it. It's in the Bible. And we're told that we're not to conform to this present world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, we're to change the way we think about these things. Amen. Uh, let me show you some th things about uh, hair, symbolism of hair. 
in the Old Testament, among the ancient Jews, and, and really throughout the world, a shaved head was symbolic of mourning, bitterness, and disgrace. As you look at the verses below, I want you to keep in mind what Paul said, that it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, all right? And so he's telling us here that both cut hair and shaved, a shaved head are equally shameful for a woman. It may not be that way in the, in the, in the eyes of the world, but it certainly is that way in the eyes of God. So think about these verses, Isaiah twenty-two, twelve. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. So a shaved head was connected with weeping and mourning. Uh, Ezekiel twenty-seven, thirty-one. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth, and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. And then Micah 1 and verse 16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. So mourn for your children because they're being carried off by the Babylonians and uh, they're going into captivity. So shave your head and mourn. Uh, So a shaved head was also symbolic of judgment, dishonor, and shame. Isaiah 3 and verse 24, so it shall be instead of a sweet smell, there shall be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. So uh, here it's, it's, it's uh, connected to a stench uh, and, and sackcloth. Uh, Jeremiah 48 and verse 37, for every head shall be bald and every beard clipped. On all the hands shall be cuts, and on the loins sackcloth. Uh, and then in Ezekiel seven eighteen, they will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face. Baldness on all their heads. So the the idea of a shaved head is continually connected with shame and disgrace and the judgment of God. Uh, cutting off the hair is also symbolic of God's rejection. Jeremiah 7, 29, cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now, in contrast to those verses in the Old Testament, we see that growing hair is symbolic of blessing and glory. Uh, Ezekiel 16, 7, I made you thrive, speaking of Israel as a young nation, He says, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, and your hair grew. So growing hair is, in this depiction of Israel, is connected to Israel growing and developing and thriving. Um, Some believe that the idea behind the Nazarite vow was that men would be publicly bearing shame in a symbolic sense, by letting their hair grow. And it's according to the way Jesus bore shame on the cross. Okay, so all of these Old Testament uh, scriptures have uh, symbolic or um, they're prefiguring New Testament spiritual concepts. Okay, so when you think of men with long hair in the Old Testament, who is the first person that comes to mind? Long hair on a man in the Old Testament. Who's the first person you think of? 
Samuel? Does it say he had one? How about, how about, how about Absalom? Some of you, somebody said that. Okay, so I think Absalom is kind of the classic. Well, Samson is a really good one too. But um, the Bible says that Absalom only cut his hair once a year, and he just did it because it got so heavy. And uh, finally, after trying to forcibly take the throne from his father David, he died, how? When his hair got caught in the branches of a tree, right? His hair, his long hair, which was his pride and joy, became his undoing. And so the Bible says Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth. What a... What a horrible way to go. Woo. In Old Testament days, before the priest entered the tabernacle, he first had to be anointed with oil. David was referring to this when he wrote in Psalms 133, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edges of his garment. So picture... The priest standing there with the holy anointing oil running down over his head onto his beard and shoulders. Now think of the New Testament priesthood. We are the New Testament priesthood. We are the body of Christ. Uh, We are the royal priesthood. But instead of being anointed with holy olive oil, we're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And as God's people, we're also the bride of Christ. And just as a bride is to be subject to her husband, so are we subject to our spiritual husband, Jesus Christ. Now, because a person's hair is so visible and conspicuous, it's very important. It's a very potent and significant symbol in the Bible. And in the analogy of Jesus and his anointed bride, we have a man with his uncovered head representing Jesus, and we have his wife with a covered head representing the church. And just as the church is covered with the ever-flowing anointing of the Spirit, so a Christian woman should be covered by the ever-flowing hair. And just as we should receive God's anointing exactly as he gives it to us, and we should not try to fashion it or manipulate it to suit our own desires, so a woman ought to allow her hair to grow out however God gives it. And sisters, you may not like it all the time, but see, this is where we got to distinguish between physical beauty and holy beauty, the beauty of holiness. You know, it's not how your hair appears to the eye that's really what's significant. It's how it appears to God. And if it's holy hair, it's beautiful hair. And for those of us who appreciate holiness and and esteem the beauty of holiness, it's beautiful to us too. It is. Um, So we're to be a perfect portrait of Christ and his bride. Um, To cut the hair so as to suit your own taste is really to damage this very important portrait that God wants to bring to the world. And we need to realize that these kinds of analogies are very important to God. You may remember when Moses was told to strike the rock and the water would flow out, 
that the next time he was told, don't strike the rock, but he got mad, he lost his temper, he struck the rock anyway, and water came out, and, and God barred him from going into the promised land because of that. And you think, why was that such a big, big deal? Because it was an analogy, and Moses messed it up. Striking the rock was symbolic of the crucifixion. The water flowing out was significant, was symbolic of Pentecost. There was only, Jesus was only going to be crucified once. He suffered once for all. And uh, Moses messed all that up when he struck the rock a second time. And so God said, okay, Moses, you've done a good work up to this point, but you crossed a line here. I love you, but you're not going into the promised land. Wow. Let me just quickly go through the voice of history. And um, then if there's any questions at all on this, I mean, we can stay here till whenever talking about it, answering questions. But uh, many of the early Christian writers wrote of the significance of hair. A man named Clement of Alexandria uh, was a church leader who lived about 100 years after the apostles. He wrote a book called The Instructor, and he wrote, God wishes women to rejoice in their locks alone, growing spontaneously. He taught against elaborate braiding, curling, and dressing of the hair, dyeing hair, and wearing false hair. He told men not to adorn their hair like women or to let it hang in long womanish ringlets. Okay? So this was 100 years after the apostles. There was another man named Tertullian, lived about the same time as Clement. He wrote a book called On the Apparel of Women. He taught that women should not dye their hair, should not use wigs or arrange their hair elaborately. This is not scripture, but this reflects what the early Christians believed. Uh, He also wrote, let the world, the rival of God, see to it if it asserts that close-cut hair is graceful to a virgin in like manner as that flowing hair is to a boy. And in the new Shaft-Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, it says that in biblical times, women never cut their hair, and long hair was their greatest ornament. Now, let's move to more contemporary times. Uh, The World Book Encyclopedia says short hairstyles became popular in the 1920s. All right, we're back up. All right, so uh, anybody ever heard of Irene Castle? Okay, well, there's a picture of her. There's actually a lot of pictures of her, I found out. Um, And she was kind of the first. She was the groundbreaker. She uh, broke out of the old archaic system of women letting their hair grow long. 
And um, during the 1920s, uh, women cutting their hair was one of the most controversial issues of the day. Now, you didn't learn that in high school, and that doesn't get really talked about much. People act like it's just always been like it is, but no, it's pretty recent. Uh, there was an article in the June 27th, 1925 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, the author said, there hasn't been a newspaper printed for the past two years that hasn't carried some sort of little story about women's hair. It used to be a woman's crowning glory, but now it's just hair. It almost sounds like a scripture, but that's just of a, a, in, a, in a magazine. In the March 1927 issue of the Ladies' Home Journal, the one of the writers wrote, the most radical change in the costume of women in our times has been the change in hairstyles. Hair really is the crowning glory of a woman. Her hair still remains the most telling item of her appearance, and now short hair is considered chic. It is also the symbol of the freedom of women. So it really, this was the beginnings of the feminist movement, all right? Now, not everything about the feminist movement is bad. Uh, many ways, women were subjected unfairly. And uh, so, I, you know, I think any reasonable person thinks women are equal under the law, should be able to vote and have rights and so on. But um, uh, freedom for women in this sense is talking about freedom from authority, freedom to do what they please. Within four years after Irene Castle cut her hair, the number of hairdressing shops in America quadrupled. Some department stores and hospitals discharged any female employees who bobbed their hair. You could get fired for cutting your hair short. Many men divorced their wives because they followed the fashion of the day and cut their hair. Pretty amazing. In 1926, a court in Missouri awarded custody of three children to homes with, quote, Christian influence because their mother had bobbed her hair. How the times have changed, huh? Every one of us sitting here today came into the world after the 1920s. And all most of us have seen in our lives as women with cut hair. And so to most people, that's just normal. That's just natural. Most people don't even think anything of it. But to God, it's not normal. To God, it's a distortion of his original plan for man. And as apostolic people, we need to decide what's going to govern our thoughts and our actions Will we simply follow the practices of the corrupt world that we live in, or will we allow the Word of God to inform our faith? And that's really what it all boils down to. I was telling um, Brother Harrelson the other day that uh, one time uh, when my children were teenagers, my mother called up and said, I need to talk to you, called me at work, said, can you come over here after work? And I said, yeah, sure. And so I went by and my mother and father sat me down. Here I am, like 31 years old or 32 years old. And they sat me down and said, um, we think it's terrible that you aren't letting your children watch TV and you won't let them cut their hair. And 
I, I didn't know any of this had ever even come up. But um, so I said, well, you know, I grew up in front of a TV set. We never had any interaction because we were always watching TV. So by not having TV, my children and I actually talk and we uh, spend time together and we play games together. And, and my dad said, well, you can't really argue with that. And then I said, as for hair, uh, that's just because that's what the Bible says. And, and I said, now, the, the real issue here, Mom, is that I believe the Bible is the Word of God and you don't. And she said, well, okay, I guess I have to agree with that. And uh, I said, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I wanted to let my hair grow long so I could be in a rock band. And you wouldn't let me. You used to make me go to the, hair, to the barbershop and get a haircut. And that was your parental right, right? I lived in your home. You had the right to make me do that. Well, my girls live in my home. I'm their father. I have a right to tell them they can't cut their hair. How can you argue with that? And she said, well, okay, you got a point. And so they left me alone. They never bothered me again about it. And uh, about a week after this conversation took place, we were going to breakfast with my parents, and we walked in this restaurant and my youngest daughter had really beautiful, long, blonde hair at that time. And, um, she, and, and we walked in, and a lady that was leaving the restaurant stopped us right at the door and said, oh, young lady, I just have to tell you, you have the most beautiful hair, and just went on and on about it. And um, I just thought, that's, that's God just tweaking my mother, you know. <laughs> So, uh, you know, God, God, again, it's not the length, it's not the color, it's not the quality, it's the fact that it's not cut. That's what makes it beautiful to Jesus. Amen? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here. Uh, does anybody have a question?